Welcome to The Trail Ahead, conversations at the intersection of race, environment, history, and culture. We're your hosts, Faith and Abby. We bring on folks from all walks of life to have real, authentic, messy dialogue that can lead to tangible change. My dream growing up was I wanted to own a ranch in Wyoming. That's what I used to tell my family. They would laugh in a funny way. Like my dad's dad would tease, like, where did this guy come from in our family? Because no one is a cowboy kind of thing. Our guest this week is Gabe Patterson. He is a biomaterials scientist, a climber, the founder of Soul Ascension Crew, and an ambassador at We Got Next, a nonprofit organization aimed at increasing representation in the outdoors. We talked to him about growing up in rural New Mexico, the joys and challenges of leading an affinity group, and one of our favorite topics, what it means to see yourself outside. My name is Gabriel Patterson, normally go by Gabe. Currently, I'm living in Davis, California. Came out here to do my PhD at UC Davis in agricultural and environmental chemistry. What I study is cellulose-based material alternatives to petroleum-based products. When we say playing outside, What does that make you think of? Where do you go? I'm from Santa Fe, New Mexico, and I have two older brothers. Our parents divorced maybe in 1995, so I was four or so. So when I was with my dad, we would drop my brothers off at kindergarten, and he and I would go to the local barns and would just like look at the horses, and we eventually got to know the people and they would let us break the ice in the wintertime from like the water troughs and throw hay out and stuff. And so I always had this like affinity for horses from a young age. And then by a miracle in second grade, I met this boy, Antonio Marquez, whose family is like multi-generational Mexican-American and like indigenous. And so with him, around age eight is when I got really involved with ranching. And so, you know, sometimes it was almost every weekend, Friday after school, his family and I would drive up to their ranch and we do a number of things like fixing fences, feeding the cows. So we'd load up this truck with a bunch of hay bales and would just like put it in drive and it'd do like this slow couple of mile hour roll across the plain and we'd kick off hay bales and all the cows would come in from all over the place. And we said we'd we'd feed them and do like this big loop. Later in the year, before it got too cold, we'd have to do these roundups and we'd bring the cattle out of the mountains and all the other ranchers in the area who would also let their cattle graze in the spring and the summer, the cows would all be mixed up with each other. So some hundred cowboys or so would take off into the mountains and would round up the cattle and then do a whole sorting process based on the brand on the cattle. I want to talk about Panama next because we have that in common. When I spent time in Panama, which was 2004 or something like that, and my host family raised cattle, but we weren't right near the farm. So we'd My host family and I would jump into the trucks at like whatever time in the morning, like I can't even remember, (laughs) 
go out into the hills and my like host brother and my host dad would just start yelling. And these cows would be like coming down out of the mountains to come get milked. But I was terrified. I was <laughs> yeah. like, like I thought I was like, cows, cool. And then I was like, oh my God, these things are big. They're massive. They're like they're massive. But I feel like nobody thinks about cows as being terrifying. And I just want some validation. Hundred <laughs> percent. I hundred percent agree. Where I learned for the first time that cattle were totally and horses too like i had a fear of horses as well because i mean in both cases i feel like they can sense your fear and then so when we do these roundups there's so much energy there's cows everywhere there's missing calves and horses and it's tense and when the cows get tense they all start to shit so they're just like throwing their tails up and they're just like (laughs) unleashing cow pie everywhere Oh, yeah. God. I had no idea. <laughs> so, so gross. Yeah. yeah. It's, and, like, it's like a stream. <laughs> it's a stream. Yeah. <laughs> Horrible. And there's like synchronized mooing and the cows get aggressive and will charge and, and they're big. You realize how large these animals are. Thank you. I, yeah. I feel like I, I, needed needed that. I needed that. I needed that. I didn't know I needed that. I mean, today. we we heard you grew up as a cowboy. That was a word that we saw was used by your childhood. And that that is true. That is very true. <laughs> I first came across you via Melanin Basecamp. I wanted to ask you, like, how has Melanin Basecamp and other groups and platforms like that, like for me, Outdoor Afro, Latin Outdoors and Melanin Basecamp, when I first started kind of understanding there was a quote unquote outdoor like community. I wasn't seeing people that look like me, but I had people cheering me on, like shouting out, connecting, et cetera, from those spaces. And that felt like my community was maybe, even if it wasn't physical, it was definitely virtual. For me, Melanin Basecamp, finding out about them and seeing that they were highlighting people in the scene, I was like, whoa. That was my first eye-opening, I'm not the only one out here. And that, in fact, in all these little bubbles all over the world exist people like us. That was the community I was looking for all these years. You know, for a long time, I've had this, like, fire in me to somehow give back this opportunity I've been afforded to be in the outdoors and to rock climb. And I telemark ski. And then... My parents and my grandparents all created this space for us to form this relationship with nature and be outside and have these opportunities. And I wanted to like translate and give back somehow, but I didn't know what. And I've been feeling it for a long time. And once I saw these affinity groups popping up, I was like, dang, this is my opportunity. And I reached out to Summer. He's talking about Summer Winston, a rad climber based in the Bay Area in California and the founder of the Brown Ascenders, a BIPOC climbing group working to increase accessibility of outdoor spaces, related education, and recreation for BIPOC adults and youths. And originally, Soul Ascension Crew was supposed to be the Brown Ascenders Sacramento branch. But as as I started sitting on it, and Summer was super open and chill, she's like, you know what, if you want to do an extension, awesome. If you decide you want to run your own thing, different name, also supportive. I just want to be here to support whatever you need. And so I was sitting there kind of brainstorming and eventually Soul Ascension Crew came up and started running some of our first meetups. And it's been it's been great. It's been very challenging to run 
an affinity group like that. And actually, I want to step back and shout out the book, The Adventure Gap, which brought to light that expedition that Tyrese and Scott Briscoe and many others were a part of. And I think to read that book and hear about those people was my first taste of like, there's other people out there that are doing this. And that book is probably, if you ask me what book is most important to me, it's that book. Yeah, yeah. The Adventure Gap by James Edward Mills. I totally agree. Oh, so I wanted to talk about Panama a little bit. I read some of your experience there and it felt very similar. This idea of kind of always having stood out and then suddenly blending in. And I know what that experience was like for me, but I'd love to hear more about that from you. Yeah. So Santa Fe, New Mexico, my family, we were basically the only black family in town. And I think that that's changing now. We weren't the only black people, but thinking about my high school, they were less than 10 black people. So growing up in New Mexico, I had this affinity for Latin culture and Spanish. And my dad, he's a pediatrician and he studied Spanish heavily in college. And to this day, he still practices. The majority of his clients and his patients are Mexican-American. They're all Spanish-speaking. So I kind of grew up with that interest of Latin America. But at the same time, I was like, I went through this like radicalization phase, if you want to call it. Like I would wear Malcolm X t-shirts. And back when the iPods, you could put like an, an engravement on the back. It said, black is beautiful, power to the people and all these things. And so I also really wanted to go to Africa because I felt this, something was missing in my life. And I'm like, go back to the roots kind of thing. And then I got to undergrad and I was able to study abroad. And I came across Salvador Bahia, Brazil first. And so Bahia, Brazil was the Portuguese slave trade capital, like the first slaves that, to my knowledge, that arrived in the Americas, like 1519 from the Portuguese was in Bahia, Brazil. And that was for the first time where I felt most, I blended in. People assumed I was Brazilian. Once my Portuguese got good enough, I could get through a couple sentences in a new place before someone was like, whoa, something's, something's wrong. And, you know, meanwhile, the majority of the white students in the program, they were getting pickpocketed or they were assumed to have wealth and were bothered or they couldn't access certain spaces and feel comfortable. So that was extremely eye-opening. And What actually took me to Panama was I got an internship with the Smithsonian Institute based in Panama City. They've got this tropical research institute, and that's what took me to Panama. But going to Panama made me realize how rich the Afro-Latino crossover and roots really are. And in fact, if you go essentially anywhere in Central America... South America, at least on like the Gulf and the Atlantic coast, black people can blend in. Yeah. My experience in Panama was my first time leaving the country and, you know, I'm biracial. My dad's black, my mom's white, but I always, always have this question. What are you? What are you? Mm -hmm. What are you? Particularly from white people. What are you? 
And so I feel like when I was growing up, I always had to like explain my existence. And in Panama, they were like, oh, she's from Colón, like the Afro-Latino area. She's from, you know, she must be from there. And it was interesting because even though it was wrong, like it was incorrect, it felt so good to have someone just think I belonged. I agree. And, you know, when I came back, when I came to Davis, which was almost directly after nine months in, in Rio, when people were asking me, like, where I was from, in I had this, like, Brazilian heartbeat still rolling through me. And so, I don't know, I must have said things, but people thought I was from Brazil or something. <laughs> and at the time, I still had dreadlocks, which I think we should talk about and, like, you know, what that what that totally. can, what that means let's just go to hair real quick for people of mixed african ancestry hair is one way to link to the culture i've felt insecure m- most of my life about where i fit because for a lot of reasons but my hair was a way for me to assert to people where I belong. Same. Yeah, same. Because I was just like, just based on the texture of my hair. And it's so interesting too what you say, because I feel like before I dreaded my hair, it was as if my hair outed me. It was as if people could look at my curly hair and look at the texture of my hair and be like, oh, she's not really black. She's got this curly hair. She's got nice hair. She's got good hair. She's not really black. I literally have had someone walk up to me, touch my hair and be like, oh, you got some engine in you? Like, Literally, like, these are the things that are all caught up in just the way that your hair grows out of your head. And you're trying to navigate, like, race and politics and just, like, being a freaking kid in high school. And there's all stuff that's, like, put on you. Do you feel like you knew that when you started them? Like, when did you start locking her? In 2006. So I was, I was in high school. I think I was 15 or so. And I had a fro for a long time. I had the Afro pick with the black power fist on it. And I would like religiously pick it out every morning. And I'd go to school and all like my white and Latino friends would mess up my fro. And in those days too, like no one had any black exposure, even the the white and Latino kids. Everything people knew or thought they knew about black people was from TV and movies and MTV. So my brothers and I didn't speak the part or dress the part or we didn't have like cornrows or whatever. So there was constantly this like challenging of authenticity. And we were in DC for this NAACP convention. And I saw, you know, more black people than I'd ever seen in my life and a lot of black men with dreadlocks. And I was like super inspired. And spoke to some people and they told me where to go. And my dad and I went to this loctician and she like locked it up for the first time. And that's where it started, 2006. And yeah, you know, upon return to New Mexico, there was immediate affirmation from, in hindsight, people I shouldn't have cared about. But yeah, like Latin and white kids telling me like, yo, dope hair. Like, I feel like some kids said like, finally, you're like, acting more black or you look more black or something. And, and I don't know. And I knew these things were fucked up then, but I don't know. High school is a fucked up place. 
Yeah, no, totally. Totally. Yeah, it's interesting. So we both cut ours. I cut mine in February of 2020. You must have been around time, right? Yeah, when did you cut yours? It was December 30th, 2019. Wow, so months apart. Yeah. What has your experience been? I think what I found for me is I didn't realize, like what you said, I didn't realize what I was trying to do in terms of like taking whatever kind of ownership around my own appearance and my own aesthetic and trying to like assert my blackness. But I think I very much was doing that. I feel, you know, abroad when I was living in Brazil or in Panama, people would call me Rasta or Bobby Marley or, uh, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, and then there's also the, the dumb negative parts where in Davis where, or in California where weed is legal. I had this, this white dude come up to me like, yo, bro, like, where can I buy weed? I'm like, two things. Like, what? One, I don't know just because I have dreads. And two, dude, we're in California. There's a fucking dispensary down the street. So so things like that would unfortunately happen. And maybe that happens predominantly in in white spaces where like, oh, black dude, dreadlocks, he knows where the shit's at. And so that was like a negative experience that would happen that I thought was like, annoying and dumb. It wasn't the reason why I cut my hair. Basically, I kind of had like a crown on my head. My locks were long enough and I started doing my hair into this bun that basically sat like vertically on top of my head. I used to rock it like hanging down the back and then eventually I would put it up into this ball on the top of my head. So I was very identifiable and I would walk with friends and people would stop me who I didn't know, would compliment me on my hair. We'd talk about locks. If I, if I saw other black people with locks, we'd talk about, like, what do you put in your hair? And how do you lock them up? So there was, there was always a connection. There was connection and there was, there was recognition and acknowledgement from all people. And there was also exotification. There was an experience where, like, yeah, I felt that someone was interested in me because of my hair and my skin tone. And like, once they made that pretty known, it was a turnoff. And I, I don't know about you, but I always kind of like dealt with my hair by talking about how I was going to cut it eventually, because it's a lot of work and it costs a lot of money. And I've driven a lot of miles to my one loctician in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And what was the main motivating thing was I didn't want to be recognized for my hair anymore. I felt like I was the guy with the dreads. And while it was nice to be easily identifiable and acknowledged and all these things, I wanted to know that I was more than my hair, basically. And I was ready for a change. I had locks for 14 years. Wow. Well, I didn't I that knew was, we were gonna go. Was, right. I, we were gonna go. <laughs> I feel like this is a conversation I've been wanting to have also since. Totally. So I'm like, thank you for being just like, let's talk about hair. Yeah. yeah. Let's talk about the Patagonia Capoline Air Hoodie for a second because it's like this soft textured base layer that basically allows you to feel like a furry protected turtle or something. When you put it on, you're like a baby kangaroo who's crawling into its mother's pouch and your world is now this soft, warm, happy place. 
There are so many times where I look over at Faith and she's just on her computer with the hood pulled up around her face, working away, looking legitimately like a purple Teletubby. Oh, totally. Even in public, I can't actually care about how strange I look in that moment because I just feel so cozy. Like I have actually transformed myself into a baby koala bear and that's just my new normal. So yeah, the Patagonia Kaplan Air Hoodie, transform your world. That is definitely not their slogan. True, maybe it should be. Patagonia, in the business of saving our home planet. I'm being hella cozy while doing it. Let's talk about the Merrill Moabs. Moabs, the Moab Speed and the Moab Flight. So what do you like best about the shoes? Okay, so this is going to be me sounding like a total trail running nerd, but the lugs on both of these shoes are incredible. Nerd out. Yes, please. (laughs) What are lugs for our listeners who do not know? They're like the spikes on the tread of the shoe. Lugs matter so you don't slip and slide and still have grip on varied terrain. So you agree? Yes. The lugs on these make my heart sing. These shoes can tackle anything from soft PNW trail, even after a lovely PNW rain, to scaling rocks and J-Tree. If you're in the market for trail running or hiking shoes, go grab yourself a pair of Merrill Moabs. You can thank us later. Gabe, we haven't talked about this yet, but I'm A, really curious to hear a little bit more about how you got into climbing in the first place. But also, like, I played ice hockey growing up. But I'm a white girl from Maine, and I like I'm basically from Canada. You know what I mean? It was like not so crazy that someone grew, growing up very close to the Canadian border, who's also white, myself, would get into a sport like that. And it was it, it is a very white sport. And I think that that's yeah. I love hockey, by the way. We could talk about that for a long time. Totally, too. Totally. Now I'm like sort of thinking through like all these different sports. So I'm just curious, kind of like your your perspective, your experience with that, and then of course also wanted to kind of hear even like backing up a little bit how you got into climbing, but the way it's just fascinating. That's what's coming up for me as we're talking about this, like realizing that there's so many different kinds of people that, that congregate around different sports and what is that access like and have they been invited? And maybe there's a history there in certain ways that people have been invited in before. And then there's maybe ice hockey, which is like maybe on one end of the spectrum, right? Where it's like, mm, that's so inviting. I don't know. I don't know, but I'd love to, yeah, I'd love to hear that experience that you had. Real quick, Addie, you brought up ice hockey. So I want to talk to that. Our dad, you know, he played hockey. He played, I think, lacrosse. He eventually played like collegiate football, but in the military, he hang glided as like a hobby. He climbed a bunch of 14ers with his close friend to this day. His name is Alphago Gomez. He's my godfather, Tio Alphago. And the two of them, they would do all these 14ers in Colorado. I don't know if they've done them all, but when kids in high school were talking shit to us about what we should be and what we should be doing, and eventually it got to me. And because we, you know, they're like, you, play, you, you guys are black and you play soccer and hockey, and you should be playing football and basketball. And that got to me. And I like, I went out for the basketball off season and like, I was horrible like trying to hit a layup from the three-point line, which is <laughs> it just like doesn't work. And eventually I was like, I was like, this is bullshit. Like I'm going to do what makes me feel good and what I'm passionate about. And I think 
both parents for sure were inspirations to to go against the grain. And so even then and now, when I think about why I telemark, why I climb, why I used to play hockey was the first part was because I genuinely enjoy it. And I think hockey is actually one of the most amazing sports out there. You have to be able to, you have to skate and you had to skate backwards and you have the stick candle and there's um, a lot going on and you have to learn on. all of it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's incredible. And it's amazing to see that hockey's actually becoming more diverse too. And I think it's beginning in Canada, you're having a more diverse set of people starting to play. I think the word should is so powerful. I mean, it's just incredibly prescriptive. And I say like, either don't should on yourself or, you know, I say it to myself and I say it to other people. And what, what you just said is, is a should in a racist context is a should, you know, oh, you shouldn't do this. It's, it's prescriptive with deeply racist roots. And I was just wondering if you've ever felt that or ever experienced that when getting into climbing. For climbing and skiing in the past, I would go to groups of black people who don't do it. And they would even, there was incredible backlash from them as well, which was hard to hear of like black people don't do that. So there's these crazy cultural barriers and expectations that are coming from both sides. I don't think that any non black people ever told me that I couldn't climb or that I shouldn't climb. But I always felt like I had to prove myself when at a new gym or it was kind of like in people's language or in how they looked at me or or the comments that they said that there was a surprise that I could climb to the level that I could or that I knew what I was doing. But never had anyone tell me that I shouldn't be doing this. Yeah. Part of me, not to be not optimistic, but part of me is like, well, you started climbing later and people learn their manners. You know, they're not, they're right. more polite than kids are sometimes. Yeah. True. True. Exactly. Do you have any reflections on people's evolved sense of equity in the wake of the Black Lives Matter uprising in 2020? Knowing that what has happened in those uprisings is very much related to the context of being in the middle of a pandemic as well. I could be totally wrong, but I've like, I've been feeling like things feel dangerous or like people are, are more motivated to like inflict harm or something. Like when Trump lost that day, I was like telling Megan, like, careful, I don't know if I want to go outside. Like people are going to be doing dumb shit and maybe there's going to be retaliation. And so going to these spaces feels more like, am I putting myself in danger? Are we a target? And, you know, we, Megan and I got out on New Year's Day. We went to Auburn. And anytime you leave this city and go to rural spaces, there's a reality that I think sinks in of like politically views change and all these things. So, yeah, we roll into Auburn and you see big trucks and lifted Jeeps with Blue Lives Matter flags, stickers on them, and all these things. And it made me feel even more kind of nervous and head on a swivel. And it makes you, yeah, it makes you think that, you know, potentially now more than before going to these spaces might be more difficult for some people because they know that half the country and especially in these rural areas, people were pro-Trump. 
and it just feels like things are so polarized and tense. And I, when I was filling up gas at this gas station, I'm kind of looking around, like kind of sizing people up or like looking at them. Like, are they, are they a threat or do they threaten by me? So there's all this heightened stuff and maybe it's me overreacting. I don't know, but I feel like I'm more conscious of going into these spaces now than I was when I was in college, for example, where majority of my friends who I was learning how to climb with were all white. And so we were going to these spaces together and maybe that was a, you know, insulation and backup. But at the same time, all of these protests have made me more curious about my white friends. Like just because you're you're liberal and you went to this hippie school and whatever, like, you know, where do you actually stand? And kind of wanting to hear from them, like, they have the same beliefs that I do. And when I don't hear that from them, it's definitely been frustrating. Yeah, I would agree. It's felt heightened. And it's true that that's the interesting thing about in the pandemic, having to do more things on our own, having to do things in smaller groups. Maybe our pod is one group of people, but it's not our climbing friends or it's not our running friends. So is it safe to go to some of these places where maybe like there was a reason why we were going in numbers, whether or not we were conscious of it? I think being a leader in the outdoors, someone who is seen in that way. And for you, does that come naturally to you? Have you felt like you've had to muster it up and step into a place based on not seeing other people and wanting to be an example? Are you kind of like, I'm ready for this. I can do this. Or kind of like, oh, okay, I'm good. You know, how does occupying this space feel for you? It feels comfortable, generally. A friend of mine, Stephen Hedetta from New Mexico, he'll remind me of when we were in middle school during Black History Month, I would bring like some info. And like each day at lunchtime, I'd sit my friends down and I'd read them that like, on this day in 1960-something, this person did this thing. So I think that I've always been passionate about bringing awareness of like historical Black events or what Black people are doing to the spaces that I occupy because it's important. Representation's always been super important for me, whether it's me doing it by default because I'm in that space or wanting other people to know that like, I'm not the only one doing this. There's mad other people doing it, that black people do this. It's not a white person thing, et cetera. So I think when it came to soul attention, it was a natural progression of things. And at the end of the day, what, what I've decided when it comes to soul ascension crew is like, if I can impact one person, if I can take a black student from UC Davis, or, you know, we had this event with the boys and girls club where we brought a bunch of kids in from Sacramento where I think like there was one kid who was white. The majority were black and Latino. So if I can affect it like one person, that's what's important to me now. Gabe, your spirit is so unique and both of us are honored to have had that conversation with you. Thank you. To learn more about Gabe and his work, you can follow him on Instagram at Gabriel underscore Dixon. That's Gabriel without the I. We love the article featuring him on Melanin Basecamp. Check them out if you aren't familiar. 
We'll link to that and other relevant topics to this episode in the show notes and on our website, thislanddoc.com slash the trail ahead. The Trail Ahead is created and hosted by us, Faith E. Briggs and Addie Thompson. It's produced by Lentigua Williams and Co. Jen Chien is our editor. Elizabeth Nakano is our producer. Sound design and theme music by Cedric Wilson. Our podcast art is by Shar Tuiesoa. Check her out on Instagram at Punky Aloha. Special thanks to our amazing teams from Merrill, Adam Kepfer, Lauren King, Will Prey, and from Patagonia, Bianca Bada, Sasha Tennedy, Claire Gallagher, and Whitney Clapper. Big thanks also to Trail Butter and Outdoorsy. And thanks to our team on the visual side, Tyler Wilkinson-Ray, Fred Gorris, and Monica Medellin. Thank you for listening and for spreading the word. Follow The Trail Ahead on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. See you next episode.